0: The following sermon was preached at Liberty Baptist Church. We exist to showcase the glory of God by being and making disciples of Jesus. To learn more about us, please visit our website at lbcliberty.org. Good morning. You turn in your Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, in your pew Bible, it's page 1044. 1044. I want to share with you this morning the answer I hope for you or some answers to the question do I belong to Jesus uh, this subject is of course the most important thing that you will ever ponder in your life a- am I really a Christian I don't know if you've ever thought about that but if you have like me you've wondered and you've wondered how you would know if you were a Christian you maybe you've wondered if you can know if you're a Christian. There are certain texts of Scripture that sort of lay over the human heart, the sensitive human heart, that can be, if not intimidating, even frightening. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact many will say to me he says didn't we do this that and the other thing on your behalf we did these things for you and i will say to them depart from me i never knew you i don't know if that's ever struck you as as terrifying as it has for me it's the kind of thing that can keep you up at night and for a long time for me it it very much did so the question do i belong to jesus am i really a christian is of vital importance, not just for your assurance in this life, but for your security in the life to come. And so, what I want to do this morning in this morning's sermon as we look at Colossians chapter 3 is to um, perhaps precariously uh, jostle the assurance of those of you who are not genuine believers in Jesus Christ and yet think that you are, and at the same time to strengthen the assurance of those who are genuine believers, but sometimes worry that they're not. And this is a very tricky thing to do. We're threading a needle, in a sense. And so I want to stay as close to the text as I can. Let's begin reading Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. We're going to go all the way to verse 11. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them, but now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, scythian, slave, and free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, as we always do, for this word. We thank you that your Holy Spirit has breathed out these words. We thank you that you have not left us to our own devices, to our own wisdom, to our own good ideas, but have given us everything that we need to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We thank you that you have revealed to us through your Son the mystery hidden for ages, about salvation. I pray that this mystery would unfold even further in the hearts of these precious people this morning. Father, there are some in this room who are not believers, and they know they're not. They want nothing to do with God, and they're here for a variety of reasons. I pray that you would awaken them to the glory of your Son, give them a sense of their need for forgiveness, their need for salvation, and show them Christ. Father, there are some in this room who believe that they are believers and yet are not. And I pray that you would shake them free from self righteousness, help them to see that religion is not the means of salvation. Father, I believe that there are far more in this room who are believers and yet doubt and struggle and worry. And I pray that you would strengthen their faith, give them all the assurance your spirit speaking to their spirit to testify to the satisfaction that your son has made on their behalf. We pray all these things in your son's name, the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Now, the reason I want to stay as close to this text as I can is because my own story, I don't know if you resonate with this or not, but my own story is one of being Um, Perhaps not, not intentionally, but I believe manipulated and misled about how I might know that I'm saved. I grew up in the church, heard the message of the gospel, and yet it was very clear, implicitly and sometimes even explicitly, that my sense of assurance was based on my performance. Uh, there's a place in Paul's letter to the Galatians where he's, of course, concerned about their uh, becoming corrupted through um, sort of the works salvation heresy from the Judaizers. And one of the things that he says to them is, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And for a large part of my Christian life, the, the answer, at least implicitly, was yes. You you got in by Jesus, but you stay in under your own power. You stay in under your own performance. And so, as a very uh, timid, um, pretty anxious, uh, worrisome, we might today use the word neurotic um, kid, um, this was very troubling to me. I I believed that my salvation was based on how good a Christian I could be. And I lived in a particular time where um, the, the church culture, perhaps it was just my context, but I think it was fairly widespread. In fact, after the Uh, morning service this morning a, a few folks came up to me and said you could have been telling my story from my childhood growing up in church so I don't think it's an isolated incident but I grew up in a climate of fear kind of a culture of fear a church culture of fear Everything could kill you, we were sort of impressed upon. And in fact, there was sort of a spiritual element poured onto this. Uh, I grew up, um, I was born in the late 70s, grew up into the 80s. And there was a time where we were told even certain toys we played with would give us a demon. Certain cartoons you would watch would give you a demon. Certain things you would see at a friend's house would give you a demon. Everything could give you a demon. And to these days, I think that one of the devil's great schemes was actually making the church believe he was more powerful than he is and creating this sort of climate of fear for us, everything could kill you. Now, put into this, um, the way that I was sort of jostled in my assurance early on, um, there were a series of movies that came out in the late 70s. You can still see them on YouTube. Um, The younger generation thinks that the Kirk Cameron Left Behind movies is like the beginning of of the Left Behind movies. Oh, no. There was a whole series of Left Behind movies that came out in the 70s, and some of you perhaps remember them, A Thief in the Night, A Distant Thunder. Do you remember these? And I remember as a kid getting all excited because you would hear that on Sunday, at the Sunday evening uh, you know, church service, they're going to show a movie. And when you're a kid you know, and you're, you're, you know, you're kind of dumb, you're excited. They're like, a movie? Yeah, none of those guys getting up talking. To, you know, There's going to be a movie, and you're all excited they're going to show a movie. And, they get the, and it's actually a movie with the projector and everything. And so it feels like you're really at a movie theater, and they showed this movie, and it scared the living daylights out of me. It was uh, just like the sort of newer ones, like you don't if you take the mark of the beast or what have you, or you get left behind. The Lord's going to come back, and if you're not faithful, you're left behind, and that's trouble. And I was so scared. Like now, I make jokes about this. I think largely as a coping mechanism, <laughs> because it really messed me up. To the point I was like 10, 11, 12 years old and I'm sleeping on the floor of my parents' bedroom because I was so frightened. I would have nightmares, legitimate nightmares about this experience, that Jesus is coming back and I'm going to get left behind. Now, all of this sounds somewhat silly and I'm able to be sarcastic about it now, but it really had a devastating impact actually on my spiritual life. Because the reality is I didn't need any help being afraid. I was already a very scared kid. And I also didn't need any help thinking that my salvation was always sort of up in the air, in limbo. I carried around with me a sense of not being good enough, of being rejected, of being disapproved of, of not fitting in, of not belonging. And lots of young people struggle with that, of course. Lots of grown people struggle with that, actually. But you take that disposition and you spiritualize it, and it became somewhat religiously toxic, to my heart. It made me a very fearful and very anxious Christian. And the message of the gospel is the good news that sinners are saved on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross and out of the tomb. But for me it very much seemed like my security, my assurance of salvation was vitally connected to what I had done. And when you realize that you're constantly aware of your sin and constantly aware of your failings, tying your assurance to your accomplishments is a great way to always feel insecure. I believe that was only as good as what I hadn't done. And so I would lie awake at night sometimes and stare at the ceiling and wonder, am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? If you resonate with that, if that sort of echoes in your heart, you've been in that position. The first thing I want to Say to you is that it's completely normal. You're normal if you have those concerns or had those concerns. When I was pastoring, sometimes occasionally, you know, people would come with these questions of assurance, questions of security. They were racked with guilt over a particular sin, perhaps, or the just this anxiety, general anxiety. And they would ask these questions: How do I normally say? I'm worried that I'm not really saved. And This isn't give the full answer, but kind of the first step that I would take with them is sort of a question back to them. And the question was essentially this. Do you think lost people worry about their salvation like this? I I suppose it's possible, but in general, people whose heart isn't changed don't tend to worry whether their heart is changed, right? Just the fact that you're concerned about your eternal state is an indication the Lord is at work. Just the fact that you would be anxious about whether you belong to Jesus is at least one good sign that you have a new heart that cares about Jesus. But I think there's some further diagnostics that we can do that, that help us sort of answer the question, can I know that I belong to God? I believe the answer is yes. How would you know that you belong to God? Well, I want to share with you um, three sort of longings yearnings that go deeper than our fears, deeper than our uh, superficial feelings, in fact, even deeper than our outward religiosity, but actually speak to our desires, the concerns of our heart. It's okay for us to do this. In 2 Corinthians 13, Paul says to test yourself to see whether you are in the faith. So if you were going to test yourself, what questions would be on the test? What sort of indications would you look for? Well, here's the first one, I think. Real Christians long for the eternal over the earthly. Real Christians long for the eternal over the earthly. Now, here's what I don't mean. I don't mean, do you ever enjoy earthly pleasures? Right. God has made this world, and he made it good. And although creation is broken and in need of restoration, there are good gifts to be enjoyed by God here. What kind of father gives you gifts and then says, don't enjoy those, right? But the good gifts that he gives us out of his common grace are not to be enjoyed purely for their own sake. They're to be enjoyed for the glory of the one who made them. So the implicit if-then statement in Colossians 3 verse 1 is really key to understanding the whole passage here. Look at how Paul starts this train of thought. If, verse 1, if you have been raised with Christ and then you imagine sort of a parenthetical then, then seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. If this is true of you, then this is how you would think about the world around you, Paul is saying. In other words, we might say, where's your hope? Where's your ultimate satisfaction, right? It's okay to have fun with things designed to be fun, to enjoy tasting good food and reading good books and watching good movies and playing in God's creation in a variety of ways. But do those things satisfy you in the way that only God should satisfy you? Do you find your satisfaction in the eternal more than the earthly? When I was in m- middle school, one of the things that we were supposed to be afraid of, one of the means of leveraging fear against us was sort of the second wave of Cold War threat of nuclear war. Right? There's the Cuban Missile Crisis and all of that that went through in the 60s. And then in the 80s, there was still this constant specter of nuclear uh, cataclysm between the United States and the Soviet Union. Union and um, in the early 80s, um, uh, thereabouts, there was a movie that a television movie that came out called *The Morning After*. It was like this really huge pop culture phenomenon. Essentially, posited what it would look like a sort of post-apocalyptic results of uh, the Soviet Union attacking the United States with nuclear missiles. And this was something; it was a constant conversation. The threat of nuclear war is always there. There was a rapid armament between both nations, and things were getting very heated. And I remember I was in the sixth grade, and our class was having a discussion about nuclear war and what might happen if the Soviet Union sent nuclear missiles to the United States. What would we do? And at this particular point, on this particular day at least, I was feeling somewhat bold, and I announced in the discussion that I wasn't afraid to die, (laughs) Which got me uh, written up and sent to the counselor for. <laughs> I mean, I want to give them credit and be charitable. They were concerned, right? When a sixth grader says, "I'm not afraid to die," you think maybe is there something is there depression? You know, is, there is he suicidal? You want to like you want to check that out, probably. And so I went and met with a counselor, and I was trying to explain like, where it was coming from, why I said this thing, and, and uh, she looked you know, halfway convinced that, you know, I, you know, are things okay at home, are you, you know, all these sorts of things. She seemed you know, convinced that I wasn't you know, imminently a danger to myself and what have you, and she sent me home with this book to read, and so I started reading this book, and I was very confused. I started reading this book, and it was talking about all the changes your body is going through, and I just thought, I don't, I don't think this is for me. I don't know. It started saying about, you know, your chest is about to get bigger. And I was like, I don't think this is my book. This is not my problem. It's not my chest getting bigger. Because when you're a 10-year-old boy, the only thing scarier than nuclear war is the idea of your chest getting bigger, I think. Uh, And they need to give the book to men when they turn 40 because that's uh, (laughs) when the real threat begins. But anyway. (laughs) They were concerned I was depressed. But at that moment at least, I wasn't depressed. And in fact, I wasn't really even saying that I'm not afraid to die, right? It's normal to be afraid of dying, like the actual dying. That's just being human, of the pain, of of all those sorts of things, leaving people behind that you love, all, all, all of that. That's normal to be afraid of dying. What I was really saying is, I'm not afraid of what comes after. Because Jesus himself said, there's things that are worse than death. In fact, he says, don't fear him who can just take your body. Fear him who can take your body and your soul. The second death, the spiritual death in hell that comes after physical death for people who reject Jesus Christ is far worse. And when we set our satisfaction, our hope on earthly things rather than eternal things, we are in effect saying, I choose damnation. In that middle school class that day, I wasn't really saying I wouldn't ever be afraid of dying. I was saying I wasn't afraid of what comes after. I was thinking about heaven. Verse 2, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Let me ask you this morning, do you think about your spiritual life? Does it impact your thinking and feeling more than the world does? Does the reality of God impact your daily decisions? Does it impact the, how you process your life? Or is he just some vague idea, some religious grandfather in the sky that you literally only think about when it's time to go to church or be religious? And all of us mess up in this. This is not about being perfect or perfectly spiritual. No one can bear that burden. It's simply about your ultimate hope. Where do you find your salvation, your justification, your job, your money, your education, your neighborhood? your strength or your abilities, or is it in eternal things? Friends of mine know that I'm a big fan of Tom Brady as an athlete, I should say, should mention. He has what most people in the world think is what you need to be happy. Especially when I talk to young people and I say, what is it you aspire to? What do you want out of your life? If you had that, you know you'd be set, you'd never worry about another thing. Of all those answers, Tom Brady has like all of them. So some people would say, I just want to be a success at what I do. I want to be considered the top of my field or one of the greatest at what I do for a living. Some would just say, I just want a lot of money. Then I wouldn't have to worry about anything. I'd be secure. I could get whatever I want. I want a big house. You talk to young men. They're thinking about marriage. Man, it would be nice to have a supermodel as a wife. Tom Brady has all of these things. Millions and millions of dollars, adoring fans all over the world. Many athletes are called the greatest long after they've gotten old or after they've passed away. Brady is still playing and there are thousands of people on TV, magazines, social media who say he is the greatest of all time. And you would think then that he would be the happiest guy who ever lived. It's sometimes attributed to actor Jim Carrey. I haven't been able to track down that he actually said this, but it's popularly attributed to him where Jim Carrey said, I hope that everyone gets a chance to make as much money as they want and be rich and famous so they can see it's not solving the problem. Well, a few years ago, Tom Brady was on 60 Minutes, and this is when he only had three Super Bowl rings, not six, so maybe his story has changed, but I think probably not. And he said to Steve Croft on 60 Minutes, why do I have three Super Bowl rings? and still think there's something greater out there for me. I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God has got to be more than this. And I find it interesting, you know, he takes the Lord's name in vain there, and it's almost like it's this implicit prayer. God, there has to be more than this. He says, I mean, this, isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. And then Croft responded back to him and said, well, what's the answer? And Brady said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. What we are seeing play out there and in a hundred other stories similar to this is what we see in the scriptures themselves, particularly if you think about the book of Ecclesiastes. right? Ecclesiastes is Solomon as an old man basically getting in the time machine and going back and encountering his younger self and taking himself by the shirt collars and saying, look, you get it all, and it doesn't fill the void. Everything you ever wanted, you accomplish. And it's like chasing the wind. You never catch it. It will never satisfy what's going on inside your heart. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth, because the evil days are coming. The days in which you say, I take no pleasure in them. Have you been putting your hope, your satisfaction in temporary things and wondering why it's not fulfilling you like you think that it should? If I could just get this, then I'll finally be happy. And then you get that and realize, oh, no, there's something else. There's another level. There's something more that I need. Even religion, by the way, can become this kind of meta against the angst in our soul. Because I was the good kid, at least externally. I was the one who tried to be the religious leader, to have all the answers in Sunday school class. I was the one that people looked at and said, now that's a good kid. That kid, he's really spiritual. He's really going places. Because I learned all the answers and spoke up in class and tried to be a good religious young man. But my hope was in that performance. My hope was in that goodness. And I was miserable. I realized I'll never be good enough. I will never measure up. But Christ does. And Christ has. Do you long for the eternal over the earthly? If so, you can know that you belong to God. Secondly, real Christians long to be sinless, not just guiltless. Real Christians long to be sinless, not just guiltless. Just as it's normal to be afraid of dying, it's normal to hate the consequences of sin. Getting caught, getting punished, getting shamed, losing privileges, losing relationships. But everybody hates the consequences of sin. You don't have to have a new nature to hate the consequences of sin. But you do have to have a new nature to hate sin itself. Let me ask you this, because it's not enough to simply want to be free of guilt, do you want to be free of sin? How do you know? Well, if you get caught, or if you don't get caught, are you still hurt? Do you still feel convicted, even if you don't get exposed? Paul says, verse 5, therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. It's interesting that he connects it to idolatry because he's saying this isn't simply about the surface behavior. This is actually revealing that you worship something other than God. When you're worshiping something other than God, you will act out in these ways. Because of these, he says, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them, but now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator." And verse 10 is really the key theological point in this section. It's the key point that's in play here. Having put on the new self. If you're saved, you're being renewed by the Holy Spirit, it goes on to say. In another letter, Paul puts it this way. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is simply Paul's way of explaining what happens in conversion, what we call getting saved. What happens when someone gets saved? Jesus says if you want to enter the kingdom, you must be born again. It's not simply about playing the part. Something internally has to change. you got to be a new person, essentially. When you're born again, you're given a new nature. You're given a new heart. You're forgiven, yes, but also the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of you. It begins to direct your desires. You are being renewed, as Paul would say. Your sinful nature is there also, but you have a new nature that's conforming you more and more to the image of Christ. And if that's true, then it doesn't mean that we never sin, right? You don't become a perfect person. Christians won't be perfected until they join Christ face to face in the new heavens and the new earth. But it does mean that your natures are at war and your new nature is bothered by the old one. And we call this, in part, conviction, The Spirit is convicting you of your sin. Do you want to, as Paul says in verse 5, put to death what is part of your earthly nature, or do you just not care? Sometimes when we apologize, we get little glimpses Of this, right? We know we've wronged someone or our wrong has uh, been exposed or we've been called on it and we express an apology, but we're not really sorry for the offense. We're just sorry uh, that someone's angry with us and we just want that anger to go away. Are most of your efforts about preventing sin or about preventing being found out? Do you just think I would be terrible if someone found out about this sin that I hide? Because then I'd be in big trouble. Or do you think, I wish I could be rid of this desire. It's killing me. Please, God, help me. I don't want to do this anymore. Romans 7, maybe you find yourself in that world. Paul says, the good I want to do, I find myself not able to do it. The bad that I know not to do, I find myself doing it. What is he saying? He's not saying, oh, I can't be perfect He's saying, I feel torn. I need rescue from this. Are you willing to make war on sin? If you are, it's a good sign that you have a new nature that you belong to God who hates sin and is coming in wrath against it. If you're being convicted about your failure to honor God, it's a good sign that you belong to him. In fact, right now in this moment, if you're thinking, I don't war hard enough against sin, that's a good sign. You feel convicted about it. Do you hate your sin more than its consequences? Thirdly and finally, real Christians long for Christ, not just for heaven. Real Christians long for Christ, not just for heaven. To live with heaven in view is the highest aspiration that you could possibly have. To forsake any temporary satisfaction in this world for the surpassing satisfaction that is found in the glorious world to come is the hardest and yet the most pleasurable decision that you could make. And yet, to long for a heaven where Jesus is simply incidental is not longing for heaven at all. Because everybody longs for heaven, or at least a version of heaven. Even unspiritual or irreligious people have an idea of heaven. If I could just arrive there, perfect peace, some kind of utopia in their own mind. But everyone in some sense is longing for heaven. And sometimes the way even Christians talk about heaven leaves the impression that it exists more for their glory than for God's. I think of all the, just the cottage industry of heaven visitation books that have come out in the Christian subculture. Just this endless, a lot of people apparently have died and gone to heaven and come back and written a book about it. And if you're lucky, you get a movie, you know, (laughs) fell into a lake, saw my grandpa, came back, book deal. Oh man, that's just a great formula for success there. And one of the problems I have with these is that it doesn't seem to mirror any similar experience that we actually see in the Bible. Right. In the Bible, there's only like three, maybe four people who get to see heaven and then are able to talk to us about it. And the experience that they have doesn't look at all like what we see in so many of these books. Think of John, for instance, in Revelation. Right? He's on the Isle of Patmos and he receives this vision, and and whether he's actually transported there or the sort of the vision comes to him, in, in any event, he is able to see. Some sense the glory of Christ to stand before him, and he says, I fell down at his feet as though dead. In fact, he doesn't even get up until Christ puts his hand on his shoulder and kind of lifts him up. Think of Elijah in the temple. And what is happening there, the fullness, we perhaps won't know. But the glory of the Lord fills the temple. His train fills the temple. That's how big God is. And what happens to Elijah? He gets completely discombobulated. He despairs of himself. Think of Paul in 2 Corinthians. And we believe he's talking about himself in the context there. But he says, I know a man. He sort of even projects it third person. I know a man who was caught up into the third heaven, whether in body or soul, I'm not sure. God knows. For Paul, the experience is so personal and so provocative and so overwhelming that he, he wants to even extend it and make it a third person account. That's how. Like I don't even know what happened there. I was so undone. Even when heaven comes to people, they're not taken to heaven, but some visit, even just when angels show up, people fall down on their face. That gives us some clue of what heaven's actually like. Also in Revelation, we are told that in the new heavens and the new earth, the Lamb, the Lamb of God, will be the lamp of the new creation. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the end all be all, He's the center of the universe. He is the apex of the cosmos. This is how Paul puts it here, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Yes, every tear will be wiped. Every brokenness will be restored. Every longing fulfilled. There will be an unending world of happiness and comfort. But the best part of heaven is not the best parts of earth illuminated, but the best man glorified. Do you long to see Jesus? Think of everything that you want out of heaven. Just think of the list. What do you hope is in heaven? I mean, like, I mean, sometimes we say these things. And it's, it's not wrong to say them. We say, man, I hope there's coffee in heaven. I think there's going to be coffee in heaven. Like if you're looking at it's <laughs> the new heavens and the new earth, right? And so it's basically broken creation restored. As good as coffee is, it's not as good as it will be. Jesus in his resurrected body eating breakfast with the disciples on the beach. What will that be like when there's no sin, no brokenness, no worry, no grief? to eat breakfast with Jesus on the beach. Think of all the things you want to see. Man, I can't wait to ski the Alps. I can't, wait, I can't wait to see my lost loved ones. My grandmother, she was such a faithful believer. And I didn't get enough time with her. It'll be so wonderful to be reunited with her. Or a lost spouse. Can't wait to see them. Or a child. We lost a child that we never got to meet. I can't wait to see our child in heaven. Let me ask you this if you think of all of that, if Jesus isn't there, it's not heaven. In so many of these books and so many of these accounts, Jesus is like a character, a feature, when really he is the center. Here's the point of the Christian life and the heart of the assurance that Christians can enjoy right now. It's Jesus. Verse 11, Christ is all and in all. And when Christ is in you, he will become all to you. What do you see when you look to the end? Just you being happy or you finally enjoying the embrace of the Savior you claim to walk with now? And this is how you get to this replacement, the jostling, the switching out of this idol of heaven for the hope of Christ, to see what he has accomplished on earth as accomplished for you, to look with love at the one who has looked with love at you. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says, I've resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. See, Paul, for a long time, thought he was going to heaven. Based on his own behavior and his own leadership and his own religiosity and his own theology, Of course I'm going to heaven. If anyone's going to heaven, I'm going to heaven. And then he met Jesus. And he saw the real glory for the first time. And he saw, he knew, he felt that Jesus hadn't just died, but that Jesus had died for him. And risen again for him. Do you see this crucified Christ as crucified for you? It was your sin against him that put him on the cross, but it was also his love for you. So are you wondering, are you asking, am I his? Do I belong to God? Am I a real Christian? I promise you this. God promises you this. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be his forever he has so identified with you that even the experience of feeling abandoned, disconnected is something that he was willing to undergo. On the cross, crying out, echoing the words of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even Jesus was willing to identify with this sense of disconnection from God. Am I yours? He became like you that you might become like him. This Christ who went to a cross to bear your punishment that you might be free. When I was about in that sixth grade time frame, there was a point where I wasn't confident about, I know what happens when I die. And it's a recurring theme throughout all of my childhood, which was, I don't know if I'm saved because I'm looking at my own behavior and my own performance. And I remember a very kind person kind of taking me aside and sharing a story with me. I said, I don't know if I'm really a Christian. How, how can I know? And this person told me a story about a little girl who the devil would come to tempt and taunt and tell her that she wasn't loved by God. And the little girl prayed the sinner's prayer, probably something that many of you have prayed, that which I have prayed to receive Christ. She prayed a prayer: "Jesus, come into my heart, forgive me of my sin, that I might go to heaven when I die." And then she carved the date of the prayer on a tree. This is the date that I prayed this prayer. And when the devil would come and tempt her and taunt her and say, you don't belong to God, she would point at the tree and point at the date that was on the tree. say, This is the date that I prayed that prayer. And I, I'll tell you, like, that was comforting for a little while. And after a while, it didn't quite do the trick because then he started asking questions like, how do I know I really believed it when I prayed the prayer? What if I didn't say it right? What if, I mean, if it was based on those things then, what, how do I know Like now I've, I'm not so confident, so what if I'm not actually saved? And so I was told, pray the prayer, remember the date. I'll just, full disclosure, spoiler alert, I don't remember the date that I prayed that prayer. What do I do? Well, I've come to see that as important as those little prayers can be, the Lord really does reward weak, imperfect prayers. When the devil comes, as he often does, and says, "How you think God could love you? After all you've done? After what you think? People don't even know half of the stuff that's in your head, but God sees it all. And you think God embraced you? I don't point to a date on a tree. I point to the tree on Calvary. See, there's the proof. There's the proof that God loves me. He went that far. He was not willing to withhold his own son from me. See, as long as you're looking only at yourself, at your performance, at your abilities, at your feelings, you will always struggle with assurance. But if you look to Christ, your heart can be captivated by the one who has performed perfectly on your behalf, who has done what you couldn't do, and who has given you the eternal gift of himself. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his only son. That if anyone would believe in him, Whoever believes in him, anybody, you believe in him, you won't perish. You have the gift of eternal life. And I did some digging. I'm not a linguistics scholar. Tyler, you have to correct me if I'm wrong here. I went to look. You know what the Greek, behind this everlasting life, what the word really means? It means everlasting. The translators got it right on this one. I, (laughs) I approve of their translation. It means forever without exception without exhaustion, without expiration. Your feelings may wax and wane. Your fears may wax and wane. Your insecurity may wax and wane. But Jesus Christ, the Lord, he rules and reigns forever. There is no shadow of turning with him. You will never slip through his hands. Just to press this home, I want to say to you that if if this bores you, Like spiritually, you're just yawning at this. You're demonstrating the very danger that you're in this very moment. But if your heart is leaning in, if you know the Spirit is prompting you to make this real, I urge you right now, where you sit this very moment, to repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus. He will not turn you away. He will not abandon or forsake you. No matter what you've done, No matter what you've been through, no matter what's going on in your heart, you hand it to him, he will not let you go.